Lord God, we thank you for your word. Open my mouth to declare it. Open your people to hear it and to put it into practice. Amen. I'd like to begin the sermon today with a question. Have you ever had someone or something in your life that you trusted in turn out to be unreliable? Back in my college days, I used to work part-time as an SAT test prep instructor. My job required that I drive to different schools around New Jersey to teach test prep classes. But this was back when you couldn't get instant driving directions on your phone. GPS was just becoming a thing, and I didn't own one yet at that time. So I had to do what maybe some of you young ones can't even imagine doing. That is, I used a paper map. I'm not talking about the big road atlas, you know, that book that you stow in your car and pull out in emergencies. One step up from that, I printed maps and directions from the Internet and took them with me when I drove. Now, having a set of directions from MapQuest or Google was definitely helpful for getting to places that I'd never been before. But I quickly learned that I had to leave very early on the day of my first class just in case the map directions let me down because sometimes they definitely did. One time, the map directions took me to the wrong school. Another time, the map directions told me to turn where legally I could not turn. And still another time, the map directions told me to travel down a road that simply did not exist. And I tried each of the map services. None of them proved fully trustworthy. And then when I finally got a GPS navigator for my car and thought my days of shoddy directions were over, I soon learned that GPSs have their own problems with frequently outdated maps, poor directions, or that annoying tendency to spaz out or freeze when you need a recalculation. But life is like this, isn't it? You think you've found some new product, some service, even a person that you can really trust, and then you later find out that you can't. Do you rely on website reviews for finding good movies, restaurants, or kitchen appliances? Well, it turns out reviewers don't always know what they're talking about, or they don't have your specific preferences in mind, or they may even post a slanted or fake review just to get people to buy. Or are you looking for a news source that will give you the facts without any bias or agenda? Turns out that such a news source doesn't exist. At the end of the day, every media publisher needs to make money, and so they'll present the information in a way that appeals most to their intended audience. Even a news source that presents itself as unbiased has the bias of presenting themselves as unbiased. There's an agenda in trying to have no agenda. And what about spiritual leaders? Is there a Christian pastor Christian teacher that you can trust without reservation? We'd like to think so. But Christian history and personal experience testify otherwise. Faithful pastors sometimes just get the Bible wrong, or they don't explain it very clearly. Powerfully used men of God sometimes are exposed with shameful sins. And famous Christian leaders, maybe even the very ones that led you to Christ, sometimes deny the faith. 
So this is another one of the great frustrations of life. It's very difficult to know whom or what to trust. But how should we respond to this trust problem in the world? Is there yet some secret to make sure that we will never be let down, never led astray, never betrayed again in life? Or should we just yield to paranoia and despair, realizing that ultimately we cannot trust anyone or anything? Well, if you've been with us recently in Ecclesiastes, you won't be surprised when I tell you that God, through our author, King Solomon, it does not fall for this false dichotomy, this false choice between two extremes, but instead advocates a narrow way in between. It is the nature of this fallen world and our limited understanding in it that we will never find someone or something that is perfectly trustworthy, including we ourselves. But even knowing and applying that simple fact will help us avoid many of life's pitfalls. If you really want to live wisely under the sun, then stop reaching for the unreachable fruit of perfect reliability or trustworthiness. Instead, take hold of wisdom's low-hanging fruit and learn to put ultimate trust in no one but God. The title of the message today is Wisdom's Low-Hanging Fruit, Part 2. If you haven't yet, please open your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 23 to 29. Ecclesiastes 7, verses 23 to 29. It's on page 675 if you're using the Pew Bible. Page 675. We're going to read our passage again, do a little review of what we saw in Part 1, and then we'll look at the second part. So Ecclesiastes 7, 23 to 29, here's the word of God. I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. And I discovered more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I am still seeking, but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. We saw together last time the main idea of this whole section. In Ecclesiastes 7.23-29, Solomon warns against vainly pursuing deep knowledge and instead urges you to understand and apply three basic life truths. The first part of this thesis, and really the introduction to the rest of the section, appears in verses 23 to 24. We saw this last time. Solomon teaches us you cannot know the fundamental scheme of this world. Solomon was a wise man and especially equipped by God to understand the world. He realized that he, just like everyone else, can never fully recover the past. It's too deep to reach. 
And without a full understanding of the past, a person cannot have full understanding of the present or future or know how to act perfectly wisely in it. Therefore, Solomon's conclusion at the end of verse 24 is that no one, no matter how learned, can truly calculate, fully account for, or lay out the fundamental scheme of life. But while we cannot know deep knowledge or attain those highest fruits of wisdom, we can obtain and apply the low-hanging fruit. There are some basic truths in this world, as revealed by God, that we can know and apply to live life well. In verses 25 to 29, Solomon shares with us those three basic truths that he discovered by accident in his failed attempt to find out the ultimate scheme of the world. We looked at the first basic life truth together last time in verses 25 to 26, and that was, number one, the enticing woman or man is misery in the end. Solomon testifies in verse 26 that there is a state of living that is worse than and more bitter than death. It is to be ensnared by the forbidden woman. That is to be trapped in a romantic or sexual relationship with someone alluring you away from God, away from the holy covenant of marriage, and into sin. The forbidden woman is a trap, which... Once a person is caught in that trap, he finds it very difficult to escape to his own ruin. Solomon therefore counsels at the end of verse 26 that the one pleasing to and blessed by God will flee from the enticing woman or man. It does not go near the flattering, attractive, good-feeling snare. It does not allow himself to remain in tempting relationships or situations. He instead flees. He runs after wisdom, after life, and after Christ. There are a lot of things we cannot discover about the world, but this we can know for sure as wisdom from God. The enticing woman or man is misery in the end. But Solomon has two other basic truths for us to understand and apply. So let's look at a second now as we look at verses 27 to 28. I'll reread those verses. Solomon says, Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I'm still seeking, but I have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Notice how Solomon introduces... Oh, I forgot to mention the, the number two point. It's listed on the screen. Uh, our second point here is a good woman or a good man is hard to find. Good woman or man is hard to find. Notice how Solomon introduces the second discovery with even more earnestness than the first. Back at verse 26, he merely says, and I discovered. But notice here in verse 27, he says, behold, look, pay attention, see it for yourself. Behold, I have found this, Solomon says, which it causes us to perk up our ears. What is this important discovery that Solomon has made? Notice also how the preacher clarifies how he made his discovery. He says, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I'm still seeking, but I have not found. This is actually just like what Solomon said back in verse 25. He even again uses the term explanation. This is that, if you remember, it's a Hebrew word which can also be translated calculation 
for scheme or sum. I told you there's a mathematical quality to this word, and you can actually see that right in this new verse, in verse 27, where he says, adding one thing to another, or more literally, one to one, or item by item. Solomon is telling us that this next discovery, it came again in the midst of his searching line by line, item by item, for that deep knowledge, for that full accounting of the world. Solomon even says that he's still seeking that explanation for life, but he hasn't found it yet. Eternity is set in his heart after all, just as it is in ours, Ecclesiastes 3.11. Yet in the midst of this ultimately vain search, Solomon has found something. It's basic, and yet it's valuable. What is it? Tells us in the rest of verse 28. I found one man among, one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. First glance, this statement is a bit cryptic and hard to understand. You found one man out of a thousand, not a woman? What are you talking about, Solomon? Well, certainly Solomon is not saying that he literally could not find any people around him except one. No, Solomon was a king. He was surrounded by both men and women at his royal court in Israel. That's not what he's talking about. Rather, Solomon must be saying that there was only one, he found only one of a certain kind of man or woman. But what kind? Considering the context of verse 26 and verse 29, which both have to do with moral behavior and secret schemes, Solomon must be talking about finding a good person, a trustworthy person, a virtuous person. In other words, in the middle of his deep dive for knowledge, Solomon suddenly stops and realizes, you know what? I've lived a good long while now. I've only found one man out of a thousand who's actually virtuous, who's genuinely good, who's someone I can really trust. But you know what? Out of the same number of women, I haven't found any. Now, those are two very shocking reports, aren't they? The first, because of what it suggests about the depressing quality of men generally. The second, because it suggests that the quality of women generally is even worse. I found one good man out of a thousand, but I didn't find a single good woman. Now, because of this, many people come to Ecclesiastes 7.28 and cannot help but see misogyny. That is, the hatred of, suspicion of, and prejudice against females. Solomon just had something against women and girls. He had one too many bad experiences and then concluded, you should hardly trust a man, but you should never trust a woman. Now let's understand that misogyny, like all kinds of prejudging outlooks and showings of partiality, it is sin and reprehensible to God. That's clear from the scripture. Misogyny goes against the basic facts that all people, both men and women, have been made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27. And also that men and women are fellow heirs of the grace of life. 1 Peter 3.4. And that in Christ they are equal inheritors of all salvation blessings. 
Galatians 3, 26 to 29. Now, it is true that men and women have different God-ordained roles in the family and in the church, 1 Timothy 2, 12, Ephesians 5. It's also true that men and women have different but complementary strengths and weaknesses, Genesis 2.18. But the Bible does not teach that women are spiritually weaker or of less value than men. Yet, how are we to understand Solomon's misogynistic-sounding statement in Ecclesiastes 7.28? without compromising the integrity of the word of God. Scripture cannot be broken. How do we explain this? Commentators come up with different ingenious solutions to the problem of this verse. One commentator I read suggests that this verse is not original to the Bible. It was added later, but there's no manuscript evidence for that. Another commentator suggests that Solomon is talking about military units here, which didn't feature women, but that makes no sense in context. The most common solution is to fall back on the idea that Ecclesiastes is written by two different authors. There was an original, disillusioned, and grumpy wise man who was a misogynist, and a later pious editor who presented that original teaching with some righteous commentary. Now, this view is extremely convenient for explaining away Ecclesiastes' many provocative statements. But this answer introduces far more problems than it solves, not the least of which it contradicts the book's own claims when it comes to authorship, and it makes it impossible to say for certain which author is speaking when in the book. It just comes down to the whims of the interpreter. So those answers will not do. But still, how should we understand Solomon's words here? The real answer, I believe, consists of a few parts. I'll attempt to lay them out for you. First, while Solomon's words initially sound extreme, let's remember that the rest of the scripture actually agrees. And let me show you just some examples. Proverbs 20, Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? That's a rhetorical question. Do you know what the expected answer is? It's really hard. Can anyone find it? Can anyone find such a man? And there's a female counterpart to this. Proverbs 31.10. Proverbs 31.10 says, An excellent wife, who can find? For her worth is far above jewels. We love to talk about that passage. Oh, I aspire to be a Proverbs 31 woman. But do you realize it starts with an admission that hardly anyone can find such a woman? Or Psalm 14, Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3, says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord, that is Yahweh, has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. It is one of the common laments of the Old Testament that godly people have all but disappeared in the land. That's actually what you heard in the psalm reading this morning from Psalm 12. Khalif read that. But the prophets, too, lament the lack of good men and women. I'll give you one example. Jeremiah 5.1. 
Jeremiah 5.1, this is God speaking. He tells Jeremiah, roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. And look now and take note and seek in her open squares if you can find a man, if there is one who does justice, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. It doesn't end up pardoning Jerusalem, so that tells you what kind of people were there. Now, these passages I've just read to you, it's just a sample, but they describe the situation in Old Testament Israel. And if such is the miserable situation of the people of God who had his law, who had his special presence, who experienced his blessings, then how much worse is the situation in the rest of the world? Now, someone will say, Surely the situation is better in the Christian church. We would sure hope so. Yet, listen to some sobering words from the New Testament. Matthew 7, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, this is Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Did you get the message from Jesus? Jesus says that many who claim to be his followers and even do ministry in his name will be exposed in the last day as fakes and frauds. What about Christian leaders and teachers? Okay, maybe the regular congregation, you know, people in the congregation, maybe they have problems, but surely these leaders, these teachers. Well, listen to Philippians 1. Philippians 1, verses 15 to 17. Paul speaks and he says, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. But some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Paul says, there are some people who preach the true message of Christ, not out of goodwill, but out of envy and selfish ambition. And these are shepherds in the church. Yet is this any different from what we've been learning from the book of Second Peter? Pastor Bobby just completed his study of that book. Peter tells us false teachers will arise. And many in the church will follow them become their disciples, and live sinful lives. These are sobering statements. But perhaps the most sobering, even startling statement about finding good people, even among Christians, appears in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, verses 19 to 22, Paul says further to the Philippian church, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. 
For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served me, served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Wow. When extolling Timothy to the Philippian church, Paul says that he had no one else with Timothy's kind of kindred spirit and genuine concern. Rather, he says, they all, and that's a term that includes many who say they love and serve Jesus Christ, he says, they all actually seek their own interests and not those of Christ. So brothers and sisters, according to the scripture, even in the professing evangelical church, even many of those who would affirm the same gospel as we do, truly a good man or woman is hard to find. But perhaps you say, but that's not my experience. I know so many good men and women, both inside and outside the church. Clearly the Bible exaggerates. Well, surely a faithful Bible-preaching church does have more good people, does have more genuine Christians than the average suggested by Solomon, one in a thousand. But let's not be so quick to say that we know that someone is good. The Bible says, don't lay hands on someone too quickly to affirm them as true servants of God. Why? Because it could be you just don't know that person well enough yet. You know, one of the sad realities of our modern world is a high divorce rate. But if you think about it, why is this so? Why would a person who loved another person and thought so highly of that other person enough to get married, why would they ever want to get divorced? And you know what the answer is, right? What people would say? Well, now I've really gotten to know him. Now I know what she's really like not as exciting as I thought she'd be. I didn't know he was so selfish. can't believe he would act this way with me. I want out. Our judgment of people changes often when we get to know them. Think about your own lives. Where do you experience the most conflict? Is it with strangers? No. It's with the people you know best, isn't it? maybe even your spouse and your own family members. And why is that? It's because you know them. It's because you know them well. You interact with them often and you see their sin. You see their selfish ambition. And you know what? They see yours. And if we're all basically nobodies and we can so easily act sinfully with one another... I imagined the situation for those who are great, who have many valuable things, people like Solomon. After all, besides being a learned man, Solomon was a man of incredible power, wealth, and fame. So what kind of people do you think were attracted to Solomon? What kind of people wanted to hang out with him? You think it was those with purely altruistic motives who only wanted to serve God and help the kingdom of Israel? 
Maybe one in a thousand. Would it not more likely be those who wanted something from Solomon? Who out of selfish ambition sought a piece of Solomon's own power, wealth, and fame? I told you last time that I like to study history. But one of the tragedies that I read over and over again taking place in history is people committing heinous evil in order to seize and keep political power. It's like a broken record. In order to keep the throne or to take the throne for oneself or for one's descendants, a son will betray a father, a brother will betray a brother, a friend will betray a friend, a wife will betray a husband, a servant will betray a lord, and all of those vice versa. Something as tantalizing as power, people will do incredibly evil things. They will manipulate, they will scheme. It's happened over and over again in history. And do you think it's very different today? Do you think it's very different even for the rulers of our country? Even those who proclaim that they are so virtuous and they love democracy. The same kind of political plotting and intrigue. It's evident right in the Bible. Right in the Bible. Look at the life of King David. And surely these kinds of court intrigues, secret schemes, palace manipulations. They came up in Solomon's own life. Did that man arrive at my court because he actually wants to serve me or because he's a spy? Did that official want to administer that particular province because he loves justice or because he's trying to obtain wealth for himself? Away from my eyes, he can, he can be corrupt. Did my wife do that kindness for me because she really loves me or because she wants me to prefer her over my other wives and maybe make her son the heir to the throne? Speaking of Solomon here. And here's where I think we begin to find an explanation for the supposed misogyny of Solomon. Because of all the wonderful things Solomon had, because of his position, because he was a man, he found that women around him were even more devious than the men. After all, again, do you think godly and unambitious women were the ones who were eager to meet Solomon and see if they could land marriage with him? Moreover, many of the women that Solomon did marry were part of alliances to non-Israelites. These families served other gods and they raised their daughters in pagan ways. In other words, Solomon did not have a godly group of women around him. And these knew that they could use their connection as a woman towards a man. They could use their feminine charms on the king because he was a male after all. They could leverage what they were as females to get what they wanted from him. Whether it was the lifestyle of a princess, the prestige of being married to the Solomon, or even having their son become the next ruler of Israel. And all these women, all these wives, they were competing with one another, as is almost inevitable in any polygamous union, which is partly why God is against polygamy. It always results in strife and competition and conflict. And that's what Solomon saw around him. 
So when Solomon pauses his grand search for deep knowledge and considers the virtue of the people around him and the intrigues he has endured over the years, he says to himself, a good person truly is hard to find. I've got a lot of men around me proclaiming their loyalty, but I think there's maybe only one in a thousand who actually cares for me without scheming some angle. As for the women, I've got nearly a thousand in my harem, but I don't think there's a truly virtuous one among them. But Solomon is not simply musing for his own edification. He offers his experience to us as an example and a warning, telling us essentially, friends, you're going to find the same reality, even if it is on a lesser scale. Truly, there are some good people out there in the world, certainly in Christ's church. There are some people who really love Christ, who really love others, but they're rare. They're hard to find. And the more you have, the more you have of the things that people want, whether it's power, wealth, fame, or beauty, the more on guard you need to be against other people especially men against women and women against men. This really is another call to embrace basic wisdom, to take hold of wisdom's low-hanging fruit. Solomon tells us, don't be naive and just assume that because someone's being nice to you, he must be good. You young ones, you children, you young men and you young women, you need to hear this especially. Just because someone's being nice to you doesn't mean that they're good. You need to realize that truly good people are uncommon. Most are working some ulterior motive. There's a scheme at work. If you want to be wise then, do not quickly entrust yourself to people. And before I move on, let me also say, if by God's grace you do encounter a truly good person in your life, a virtuous man or a virtuous woman, not someone who's perfect, but someone who is time-tested in character, who demonstrates even through suffering that he is not looking for selfish gain from you or from others, but he genuinely loves God, he genuinely loves people, and he has his eyes set on the world to come. Understand, brethren, that when you find that person, that person is a gift from God. That person is a gift. That's the kind of person that you want to be around. That's the kind of person you want as a friend or even a spouse. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears Yahweh, she shall be praised. Now hopefully you found some of those people in this church. That's why I love this church. That's why we love this church. Consider that having a truly godly person in your life is a gift, so give God thanks. Be grateful. You have an uncommon treasure. So Solomon has shared with us two of his discoveries. Number one, the enticing woman or man is miserable in the end. Number two, a good woman or man is hard to find. Let's now look at the third and last basic life truth that we are to understand and apply instead of vainly pursuing deep knowledge. You see this in verse 29, number three. Man's proud scheming heart is his downfall. 
Man's proud, scheming heart is his downfall. Solomon says, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. In some ways, this final verse is just an explicit statement of what Solomon has already implied. Friends, people are working various schemes. It's all over the place. Do not be too trusting. But there's something profound here, something profound here that's being expressed about the motivation of men's and women's devious behavior. What's at the root of it? Notice how the introductory phrase here is even more emphatic than before. He says, not only, or before he said, behold, I have found this, that's verse um, 27, I've discovered this, but now he adds the word only. It's like Solomon is saying, I kept looking for deep wisdom, I couldn't find it, but here's the one thing, behold, here's the one important thing I found. What did you find this time, Solomon? Answer? that Genesis 1 to 3 is absolutely true. And before I explain that, let me point out something to you. Something you can't readily appreciate in our New American Standard translation of this passage. Look at the word devices at the end of the verse. This word could also be translated plans, inventions, or schemes. I think schemes is really the best way to translate the word And you may have noticed, if you were part of the sermon last week and just paid attention this week, I've consciously used the word scheme to translate another word from our passage. That's the word explanation in verse 25 and 27. You could translate explanation as scheme. You want to know the fundamental scheme of the world. Why did I say that? Because there's a connection between these two words. The word for explanation in verses 25 and 27 is the Hebrew word heshbon, Whereas the word for devices in verse 29 is the Hebrew word hishbonot. Do you hear how those consonants are almost the same, though the ending's a little bit different? Hishbon, hishbonot. These words are related, and Solomon does not use them together accidentally. In verse 29, Solomon is not only drawing our attention to the universal, fallen, scheming, scheming nature of man. It is a statement of man's total depravity and just a practical observation about life. But it also is drawing attention to the fact that man's sinful scheming is connected to man's drive to know and utilize the fundamental scheme of the world. Knowledge and scheming are connected. And were they not connected from the very beginning? Is that not exactly how man's fall into sin took place? Solomon says here in our text that God made men upright. And according to Genesis, that is true. And you look around at the world or you hear Solomon counseling us to have your guard up against other people because of their sinful schemes. You've got to understand, this sinful state, this devious state is not God's doing. God did not create man evil or crooked. God made man upright literally straight. That's according to Genesis 1 and 2. So where did man's crookedness come from? It came from man himself. Remember, 
according to Genesis 1 to 3, God placed in that ancient Garden of Eden a special tree. Do you remember what it was called? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's the tree of life, and then there's this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he forbid Adam and Eve from eating of that fruit lest they die. But then Satan, in the form of the serpent, lied to the woman and told her that this tree of knowledge, its fruit is actually good for you. And it's being held back by God because he doesn't want you to be like he is. He's jealous and petty. He doesn't want you to have a divine level of knowledge. So what did Genesis 3, 6 say? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. You see? It was the desire for deep knowledge, even for God-like knowledge of both good and evil. That caused Eve to scheme against God. And really, to scheme against her own husband. And to lead him with her into sin. And when Adam acquiesced to Eve's temptation, the whole human race came crooked. And express all that again in another way. It was the refusal to trust God and leave deep knowledge to Him that led to man's prideful scheming, that led to the fall, that led to the curse on the world that we all experience. And does that sound familiar? Who else that we've been learning about recently has been just like this? desiring to know the fundamental scheme of the world to the point that he's willing not just to seek wisdom, but also to delve into folly and sin and insanity. Who's that? It's Solomon. It's Solomon himself. Because Solomon wanted God-like knowledge. He was willing to yield his life over to sin and vanity. He pursued that which is unprofitable, multiplied wealth for himself, built all these gardens, did all these accomplishments. He was not willing to just trust God and accept his portion. He wanted to discover if there was a greater way to gain, to lasting profit, eternal profit, but he never found it. He only found ensnarement, even the ensnarement of the forbidden woman and many sorrows besides. So Solomon really was making the same foolish mistake in his life as Adam and Eve did. And you know who else is in danger of making the same mistake? We are. We are. All of us who are tempted to look for some secret, some divine level of knowledge so that we can discover it and find gain for ourselves apart from God. This is what's really behind all the scheming that we see in the world today. It is a more fundamental scheme to know and be like the divine. Not in the sense of worshiping God, but becoming God's ourselves. We want to become God. Thus our schemes are motivated from pride 
from coveting, from greed. That's what's behind all crookedness, all the schemes you see in the world. But Solomon discovered all too painfully that it's all vanity. Because what's the basic truth? You and I will never become God. Because we're not God. We're created. And we were designed for God. So the wise response to a world made crooked by God, cursed by God, due to the crookedness of man, is not to reach for the unreachable fruits of knowledge. In a way, that's forbidden fruit. God says, no, that's for me. That's not for you. I haven't given that to you. To live wisely is not to keep reaching for that, but it is to humble ourselves before God and take of the simple and good fruit of wisdom that he offers us. Say, I don't need to know all that. That's for God. Let me just apply the things he has given to me. We don't need to have all the answers. It's part of God's design to humble us that we don't have all the answers. So let's not resist God's design. I'm saying you can't learn anything, but let's not keep striving for that deep knowledge, that secret, that full accounting of the world. You're not going to find it. Let's humble ourselves before God, embrace his design, embrace our portion from him, and find blessing. And isn't that the fundamental message of the book of Ecclesiastes? What's the whole duty? What's the whole of man? It is to fear God and keep his commandments, not to delve into all the secrets of the universe. It is to fear God and keep his commandments. One final word before we close. In a passage showing us that we need to beware of those who pretend to be good people but aren't, but also showing us that we'll never have perfect knowledge, even perfect knowledge about whom to trust, the question arises, well, what if I end up trusting the wrong person? Will I still be okay? How will I still be okay? You know what the answer is? It's by trusting God. It's by trusting God who's sovereign over you and over all people. It is necessary in this world that we have to trust people without perfect knowledge about whether they are trustworthy. And you know what that means? We may, from time to time, get burned when we end up trusting the wrong person, end up relying on the wrong thing or the wrong person. But God is sovereign over that. He has promised to take care of us, his people, either by protecting us from deceivers outright or by bringing about a good and glorious purpose when God lets his godly one be betrayed. Was it any different for Jesus? God let him be betrayed. Jesus even knew who his betrayer was. But there was a good and glorious purpose in it. The very salvation that we all enjoy, those who are in Christ. So if we, if God ordains that we experience such a betrayal, it will, of course, be painful. And there will be many questions as to what God is doing and why. God, why did you let this happen? I thought this person was good, but he's not. God, why? There will be many questions. Know that God will bring you through. He will still provide for you. He'll still take care of you, but probably not answer all your questions. 
One day, he will. He'll show us why he did what he did. But that's not ours for now. Rather, the message from God is, remember who I am and trust me. May God make us a people that choose to trust him, no matter what. No matter the trustworthiness or the untrustworthiness of the people we encounter. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are a trustworthy God. You even say yourself that all those who came before you were thieves, murderers, destroyers. They came to kill and destroy, but you came that your people might have life and have it abundantly. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that you're our God. Thank you that you're going to make this broken world right one day. You're going to take care of your people as we sojourn through this world. And you will even give us the gift, God, of different good companions. Not perfect. They'll still have weakness. They'll still stumble, just as we do. But Lord, thank you for the gift of them. Thank you for the gift of the people of this church. But God, we are to apply your truth and not be naive not to lay hands on someone too quickly, not to be too trusting because there are many schemes. There are many people who pretend to be good, pretend to be lovers of you, God, when they're not. Lord, we want to apply your basic wisdom. Lord, if there are any here who have heard this message today and they are such persons, they pretend to be good when they're not. They pretend to know you when they don't. God, I pray that they'd repent. I pray, Lord, they'd give up their deceitful scheming and realize that you died to save such persons. And you can cover all their sins and clothe that person with your own righteousness. Lord, make them truly good people, not good on themselves, but good because of your work on their behalf. For the rest of us, God, keep us safe. Protect us from the evil one, from deceivers, from false teachers. Lord, in your perfect sovereignty, you may ordain that we encounter such persons, and maybe we can't tell that they're not really good at first, but take care of us. And don't leave us alone, God. And you've promised that you'll never leave us alone, that you'll bring us through trial, through betrayals, even, safely into your heavenly kingdom. We look forward to being with you, our beautiful and sweet Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.